Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, good morning. Sunday morning, and um, I have a very packed day. Very packed day with show business and other things. However, I committed to um, saying something this morning about Jerba, the Jewish community over there in an interesting context, and I want to fulfill because there's actually a, uh, uh, what do you call it, a, a uh, fundraiser going on right now. It's a funny story. I was approached by somebody from London who uh, is friends with the family that is uh, running the school in uh, Jerba. This is in Tunisia. I think a lot of you know, or you've heard about it, um, and I don't know enough as much as I would want to know I can share with what I do know uh, to talk about a very unusual uh, Jewish community. We're talking about Tunisia over here. But let me say that this uh, talk today, therefore, has like two or three sides to it. First of all, it's being sponsored by Yehuda Simon and uh, in London. And actually, it's going to be Zecher Nishmas, a friend, apparently, who passed away. The funeral was today. Uh... Moshe Michal ben Michael Wexler is in London. And just to tell you, I didn't know him, but, you know, apparently he was really somebody, because he says, to give me an idea of who he was, um, there was a WhatsApp group from him that had a quarter of a million capital to him over the last year and a half, which is a lot. He was involved with several communal uh, initiatives, was exceptionally down to earth and Yashar. Ain't Ode Milvada was on his mind. Ain't Ode Milvada. Skipping learning was not an option. Look at even though this is somebody who was sick. Instead, he made a Benny Chabruz at the time he had to reschedule because due to his treatment. And he this is the this blew me away. And he learned four mesechtas during his illness, which he planned to use to make a seam for a Sudas Hodal. And unfortunately, he seems to have succumbed. So we're doing this is Zechar Nishas Moshe Michal Ben Elchanan. Uh okay. And this is on behalf of of an initiative that's going on today um, to a fundraiser, in other words, a campaign of Magbid for a school in Jerba. This, in other words, in an Arab country. Um, they have a from school system, the whole community is from, actually. And uh, I just want to cooperate by saying that if anybody's interested in contributing this, and it sounds to me something as I might on myself, then you would uh, uh, go on to bit.ly. I'll start again, bit.ly, backslash, and Jerba Torah. Jerba is the name of the island, so it's D-J-E, Jerba is with D-J, right? The French spelling, uh, E-R-B-A, Torah. So I'll start from the beginning and make it and say it slowly, bit.ly, backslash, D-J-E-R-B-A-T-O-R-A-H. Jerbatog. And uh, it's for a school. I saw they sent me like a small video, uh, uh, a very charming one. They're running a uh, day school over there for kids. These are no, for kids that come in an Arab country. I'll say it again the whole community is from. So let me 
say a few words this morning about this whole phenomenon. Uh, we're talking here about the Jews of Tunisia. For those who don't know, Tunisia is a country in North Africa. Um, here you have a whole type of jewelry, which um, we usually call Sephardic for reasons, but it isn't exactly Sephardic, although there are many of them are. By that I mean, when you say Sephardic, you mean Jews from Spain. But in these countries, and especially in Tunisia and Zerba, a lot of the Jews there were there before 1492. Well, on the other hand, many came from Spain and Portugal there after 1492 as well. So it's just interesting in that way. And uh, I'll tell you the part that's the most interesting to me. When you get to North Africa, it's an entire history that goes along there for thousands of years because there were Jews, Jewish communities. Listen closely to what I'm about to say. There, most people listening to this, I imagine, are Ashkenazic. And if you're Ashkenazic Jew, you're used to the following phenomenon. There's a place. There weren't any Jews there. Then Jews showed up. They were there at such and such a time. And then they left or were kicked out or killed or something like that. And then you moved on and relocated elsewhere. So, for example, if you're Ashkenazic, they started in Rashi's time, place in France, northern France. Then eventually they moved over elsewhere to, let's say, Germany and then to Eastern Europe, and then they moved out of Eastern Europe, a Holocaust, and America, and Israel. It's a moving, right, all the time. Some end up in Hungary, some end up here. It's it, the, the key point is peripatetic. That it's never stable. Um, even in America, for most Jews, you don't stay in the same neighborhood for a long time. You're here for a while, you move elsewhere, you move elsewhere, that's how it goes. Now, by contrast, there are some places in the world which... Until very recently, they were never kicked out. It's funny. The Middle East is the place I'm thinking of. When you think of a place like Syria or Egypt or North Africa in general, there always were Jewish communities there. How far back? I don't know. I mean, very far back. That's not to say, necessarily, that the current Jews are identical with the grandchildren, you know, the descendants of the original Jews who were there, for example, in the time of the Roman Empire or, or even before that. Do you understand what I'm saying? We don't have in Ashkenazi Jewry, in European Jewry, a community that's been in the same place, Mamish, for 2,000 years, let alone 2,500 years. You see? But in the middle, in the Mediterranean area, in North Africa, in the Middle East, you do have it, at least until modern Israel, because a lot of them ran away and went to Israel and places like that. So until the 20, let's say, until 1948. There you have long standing Jewish communities. Now, again, later immigrants came from Spain, later immigrants came from here, from Italy, but the originals are the originals. Now, when you get to the Jews of Tunisia, I mean, the original Jews are way back when. I don't know if they exactly all survived the Roman times or the Byzantine times. You know, I remember Belisarius captured uh, what we call Tunisia from the uh, Vandals in the 500s. And then the Arabs came in, and then this ruler and that ruler. But the Jews have been part of the furniture for a very long time. Okay? That's just interesting. Now, uh, notice before the Talmud, that's my point, before the Gemara existed. Uh, you see, you have communities that have been there since before the Gemara existed. Now, in the case of Tunisia, um, this has always been a very important port and a uh, whole area. 
Now, Jerba, where the Jewish community is today, and where the um, fundraising campaign is for the school there, Torah Chinuch, it's called, used to be called something else. Uh, so, I mean, they're, in, they're, they're not so far away from Sicily and, and Italy. So, in other words, they're, in, they're mamish in the Mediterranean area, and Jews have been there for a long time. For purposes of this podcast, I would simply say, Think about a thousand years ago when you had Rabbeinu Hananel over there. Most of you in Yeshiva, you've heard of Rabbeinu Hananel. He was in Tunisia, or Karawan, which was an important city over there. That area, which is not exactly a peninsula, you just have to look at the map, but it, it sort of juts out from the top of Africa. Um, that's been a place where there have been a lot of Jews, always. Now, ever since the Muslims came in, the Muslims are ruling over there. But since it's very strategically located... There have been a lot of wars over the centuries in which the Spanish conquered the thing for a while. I remember the Emperor Charles V was there for a while. This one came in, set up a fortress. Then the Arabs came back. And most importantly, the Turks uh, took it over once and for all, like in the 1560s or whatever. And from then on, it was under the Islamic control until modern times, until the French came in, in the 1880s. So... Think of a Jewish community today, um, which has been around and active since, eh, you know, the 1500s, something like that. They were there before. I'm just saying, think about that. When in the, in the period I'm talking about, when it came under firm Islamic Turkish control and then under local rulers, I think these are called the day, the bay, the day. These are names of Arab rulers. So uh, Tunisia in general and Jerba also became big Makomas Torah that most of us Ashkenazi Jews are just not familiar with, myself included. I'm sufficiently um, educated to know that I don't know. <clears throat> what I'm trying to say is like this. We think of the Rishonim, the Achronim, the early Achronim, this, that, and the other, and you think of the usual places, you know, uh, in Northern Europe, Eastern Europe, those kind of things, Italy to some degree. Oh, we've all heard of the Ottoman Empire, so you know the Sephardim who were there after 1492. You know what I mean? You know, the people we talk about, the Marshtam, the the, the, the Rabia Zakaro, the, the, the Radbaz, and all that sort of thing. I mean, people have heard of these uh, people. That's true. I don't think most of us are aware of the fact that sort of like in a parallel fashion, in Tunisia, it was a big Malcolm Torah by itself. And they had big rub on him. And for some reason, their Sephardim and their reputations circulated, I think, in the Sephardic world and didn't quite make it to the Ashkenazic world. So somebody like me, myself, and I, I mean, the only thing I'm familiar with is the Erech HaShulchan. Not the Erech HaShulchan, but the Erech HaShulchan, which is like a kind of a Kavachayim, a Mishtapura sort of thing that was put out by a famous rabbi in uh, Tunisia, Bitsik uh, Taib, you know, a couple hundred years ago in the 1700s. And it's very good, but I'm just saying it has this style. So you have a Frum community, um, the culture, therefore, is very rabbinic. And uh, I think, if I remember correctly, the Moroccan Jews came there and started yeshivas. I mean, long, many, many centuries ago. And as a result, um, the Jews in this area had a pretty, was a pretty intellectual center. It's very famous, the Chidah, you know, goes around the world, the Jewish world in his time. And he said when he was in Tunisia, he met in one town 300 Talmud Chachamim. That's, I mean, and he says, Serious Talmud Chacham. So, I mean, that's unusual. 300? 
what's what what town do you know like that? <laughs> you know, um, you see what I'm saying? Because if it was a 300 serious Talmud Chacham, must have been another three or four hundred less serious Talmud Chachamim, and the result is there was a big intellectual center, even though you and I wouldn't know this, okay, ordinarily. Now here's the thing with Jerba, which is an island right off the coast. Uh, and here's the significance as far as I'm concerned. Um, what happened to all these Jews in North Africa, in Morocco and Algeria and Tunisia, was that they were conquered by the French in the 1800s and was added to the French Empire. Okay? First came Algeria, like early in the 1800s, 1820s and 30s and all the rest of it. So the French army Pasha came in and took over. And then later was Tunisia in the 1880s and later was Morocco around 1900, Baruch, 1912, whatever. So, um, just imagine that these, because before then, these were pirate headquarters, you understand? If you were Jewish and living in Tunisia, Germany, these areas, the the main, I mean, they did a lot of trade. The economy was good, they did a little of trade, and the Jews were heavily involved in the trade, not surprisingly. And uh, if you want to read a very interesting description of the Jews in the Tunis area, Tunisia area. It's the first American ambassador to Tunisia was a Jew. You know what I said? The first American ambassador, or to be more exact, the first minister to Tunis was Mordechai Manuel Noah, who was a weirdo. He was a Jewish guy, Sephardic Jew, you know, from the time of, um, literally, from the time right after George Washington, let's say, from the time of Thomas Jefferson. He was um, named the U.S. minister, like the ambassador, to Tunis, oh, in the times of James Madison, you see? And he wrote all about it and all the rest of it. And you had these uh, large communities. I mean, when Israel was accepted, there were 100,000 Jews in Tunisia. Now, they all left, most of them. I don't blame them, but I'm just saying, not surprisingly. Now, here's the thing. Um, when the all these communities used to be ruled by one or four different type of Arabs, now, uh, you know, rulers who are dictators and the Jews had to figure out some way to stay on the good side of them. And, you know, that's how life was. And the richer Jews had it easier, the poorer Jews had it worse. And uh, But, you know, everything was uh, Orthodox Judaism, let's put it that way. And some places had more learning and some places had less learning. And um, in that kind of environment, the poorer Jews were like, you know... Um, craftsmen, artisans, things like this. The wealthier Jews were in the, uh, you know, in the trade import export business, and uh, they were they were responsible for a lot of the international trade. They brought in a lot of revenue into these medinas. That's why the Arabs left them alone. Uh, and you can get the wrong idea because every one of these royal courts of these local Arab rulers had a couple of Jews, but that doesn't mean the typical Jew was like that. You understand? He had a couple guys at the top, the Mordechais, but the bottom was the regular guys didn't have it so easy. And every once in a while, the Arabs can go on a spaz and just kill a lot of people or make a pogrom. That's what life was like living in the Muslim Medina. That's what it was. Same thing happened in Tunisia as well, all over the place. So you just hope for good times. And, uh, you know, uh, you hope not to be there when the bad times hit. That is how life was lived in those days. And obviously, since it's an Arab country, so, you know, they speak Arabic or Jewish Arabic, you know, I mean, Yiddish, a version of Arabic. Um, which, you know, like a dialect, which would be equivalent to what we're, you know, like Yiddish to German. And this is how life was going. 
Now, on until the modern period, nobody knew anything else. And so the Arabs were from Muslims, so the Jews are from Jews. When I say from, I mean they conform to the rules of the religion. That's how it went. Uh, but then, in the starting 1800s, uh, the Europeans achieved such a huge gap in terms of science technology between themselves and the Muslims that the Europeans were able to use modern military technology to conquer all these North African places. So by the time you get to around 1900 or 1912, all of North Africa was ruled either by uh, France or uh, England or Italy. The French ruled um, Morocco and Algeria and Tunisia. That's a big chalik. Look it up on the map. The Italians, believe it or not, took over Libya, and the British had Egypt. So the Gans, North Africa, was run by the Europeans. Now, why am I making a point of this? The French, let's just talk about them because we're talking about Tunisia. So they took over Tunisia, even though Tunisia is really close to Italy. The French took over Tunisia and also Algeria. And what they tried to do was assimilate the Jews. This is my point. To modernize and assimilate the Jews. Now, uh, and they did, big time. And what that means is that when they came in, they said, oh, the Jews have to live in ghettos and they have all kind of rules and regulations which discriminate against them, and they live. many of them live a bad existence. But now that France is here, it's a modern country, so it'll give them equal rights, and they'll bring in law and order. You can't make a pogrom anymore, and, you know, uh, they'll bring civilization, as we would say today. But the French expected that in return for this, the Jews, who are not Muslims, will Frenchify. The key, the key word is gallicize. But that means Frenchify, right? They have to become modern, they'll dress modern, they'll speak French, they'll identify with French culture, etc., etc. The Jews in France were very assimilated and super patriotic for French. They thought that way they would be liked by the French people. And so they set up the Alliance, the Alliance. Uh, in French, Alliance Israeli, Israeli Universelle, which is, used to be called Koisrael Haverim. And the idea was that they should set up schools to educate the Jews in Morocco, Algeria, and in Tunisia, and modernize them. So these would be Jewish schools, but as we would say today, not from. Now they would say, oh, we're from. They never went beferish against anything. But Lamaisa, the way the education worked was that you educate everybody to become Frenchmen in their culture and look at the Judaism as something secondary uh, as opposed to the other way around. And the result was a korban. Okay? From the religious point of view. Because Lots of Jews, especially the younger generation, they say, it's cool to go with the French system. You get modern, uh, you become a mensch. The whole world opens up to you. You're able, once you learn and master French, to access all of European civilization. And it'll help you because the authorities here in Tunisia, for example, are French. And so it's easier to get along, kiss up to them. Meanwhile, along the way, you're losing a lot of your Judaism. Now, it wasn't like Europe because you didn't have the same social interaction patterns. So if you're Jewish, you'll still say Jewish, but, you know, very assimilated. If you And and therefore you have less and less respect for Judaism and its cultures. If you want to have a slight idea of what I'm talking about, uh, read the Art Scroll book uh, and the Adventures of Avad Yosef when he was a chief rabbi or something like that in Egypt in the late 40s. And he had so much trouble with the richy rich Jews in Egypt. 
who also were this way, and they don't want to have kosher food in the res- in the in the in the Jewish um, what do you call it? In the Jewish hospital, and they don't want they don't they don't want too much Judaism in the chinuch. This, this is what it was. Okay, so so the Jews in Tunisia, therefore, you still have the same rabbanim, you still have bate din, and that sort of thing. And there was an element that stayed from, but I would say a very large percent were powerfully affected by what everything I just described. And this would intensify as the 20th century went on. For some reason, the Jews in the island of Jerba res- resisted this. I don't know exactly the reason why, um, because it's interesting, maybe because they're in an island, they're, they're different. And they recognized, apparently, and the rabbis, they were very strong, in other words, charismatic, and they recognized already in the 1800s that this is going to lead to an assimilation. And they must have used whatever power they had and whatever charisma they had at that time to say nobody should go to the French schools and nobody should have anything to do with this new policy. And if I understand it correctly, it actually engendered, as happened in Europe in interesting ways, like a counter move to establish better schools and yeshivas and things like this. In other words, the challenge for the modernizing Frenchy Frenches, who <laughs> wanted to set the Allianz system all over Tunisia and were doing so, was countered in the island of Jerba and the community over there by doubling down, as we would say today, on the Yiddishkeit side and emphasizing the study of the Torah, the Gemara, I mean, you know, shots and poskim and things like that. And for some reason it took. So uh, the Jerba became like an island in the sense of culture, not simply in the sense of actually being on an island. And uh, it was like a from uh, bubble, you might say. Uh... So notice the old ways still preserved, uh, persevered over there during the French occupation, which um, I don't, you probably don't know this. I mean, the French were ruling there from the 1880s until uh, the 1950s, which means, among other things, that during the Second World War, uh, the Jews in Tunisia had it really rough because the French who ruled the, uh, the, the country, first of all, were the bad French, not the good French. When um, when uh, France was defeated very quickly in a blitzkrieg in 1940 by the Germans, so the, the 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 French collaborators with Hitler set up a new France with a new government, which was officially and legally anti-Semitic. It was under Vichy government, it's called under Marshal Pétain, and um, that means that the French rulers and governors in Tunisia instituted all kind of laws and xeris against the Jews in 1940, 41, 42, and 43, um, who had a hard time over there, including in Jerba. And um, in, again, if you know the history of World War II, in late 42, in November, the Americans and the British made a surprise attack and and landed a big army. And like overnight, uh, took over Morocco and Algeria. That's what it amounted to. This was Eisenhower's first campaign, Operation Torch. You hear what I just said? That like overnight, almost, an American, an allied uh, expedition conquered um, Morocco and Algeria. But Hitler, if he couldn't rescue Morocco and Algeria, but he hopped around and grabbed Tunisia. So knows as soon as Hitler found out that the Americans have by surprise landed and are taking over Morocco and Algeria, he moved very fast 
to make sure he takes over Tunisia. So from like November of 42 to like May of 43, it was a big war going on right in Tunisia. The American and British armies on the one hand versus the Germans. So the Germans were there, I guess, six months, five months, six months and all that. And believe me, they wanted to round up the Jews and send them to concentration camps. They even tried to set up a concentration camp in Tunisia itself. And uh, it was a tough time. Fortunately for the Jews of Tunisia, it was a limited time. And it wasn't possible to transport all these 100,000 Jews to Europe at the concentration camps. And so most of them survived just like with a bad six months. Uh, and if I recall, the British and the American armies, they also had South African troops over there who were Jewish guys, and they met these Jewish communities, and they, like, liberated from the Yiddishkeit and all this sort of thing. And that means 1943 is a very important year in the history of the Jews of Tunisia and of Jerba. And Nogea to the Makbit that's taking place today, um, the school, I saw the information was sent to me. I don't know if they understand themselves, the historical um, background of this, but in 1943, notice, with the liberation that came, because the last German surrendered in May. Uh, I remember that. So, with the liberation that came, so one of the people in Jerba, whose name was David Kedushan, I believe his name was, uh, said that I want to set up a Jewish school uh, for the kids in which they'll you know, the, the, the learn, uh, I guess, Ivrit, Bivrit, Limurit Kodesh. You understand? For boys and for girls. And, uh, he must have been a uh, very dedicated type of guy. And uh, he set up this school, and it's still there today. And this is the school that's having a a, um, a fundraiser because, uh, you know, they have to meet uh, all kind of bills and things like that. And uh, it's and and he clearly was, let's put it this way, if you lived in that part of the world in the 1940s and you just barely survived uh, Hitler, um, you barely survived Hitler, you're going to be very Zionist. You want to have connections there to Israel, which is not so far away. And after all, three, four years later came the state of Israel. Four or five years later, whatever. And uh, therefore the idea of Ivrit uh, was very uh, Mosheikh. You understand? Was very uh, uh, pulling. And he uh, set up the school in Jerba. And thanks to that and other schools and yeshivas that he had over there, and it's only a community of a thousand people, I believe, somehow or other, uh, they were able to stay, keep the whole community from uh, since then till today, which is uh, remarkable. And I know if you go to Mishpachan, these kind of play every once in a while, it's one of those travel things. I myself had an idea years ago um, to possibly go there one of the trips. Uh, what do you call Kiviatar ended up doing it, he told me, uh, in, in uh, having a, a Jewish history uh, tour over there. Uh, had I done that, I would have really immersed myself more in the Chachme Tunisia and the Chachme Jerba, because they had some very big rabbis over there, Kalfun, Moshe, and all the rest of it. Now, I only come across these people because I have a busy life. You don't have time to do all this. I come across these people when I look at Avad Yosef, right? The only difference is when you look at Avad Yosef, you just see Vichain Kosov, this safe, Vichain Kosov. So I'm familiar a little bit. Some of them are Tunisian. And they don't all exactly follow Vod because they have their own minogam and their own Torah tradition. That's what I want to emphasize. You know, a lot of them moved to Israel. What happened was that um, eventually all the Jews of Tunisia, but uh, there were over 100,000 
And there's like two or 3,000 left today. So all the others moved to Israel or France. The ones that went to France, probably all assimilate. You know, it goes over there. Um, really Frenchified. The ones that went to Israel, at least, are in Israel. And these would be the Sephardim. I think they have a headquarters in B'nai Brak or some kind of yeshiva over there, in which they, if my information is correct, in which they maintain the Mesoras of Tunisia. You know what I'm saying? So in other words, they're not regular Sephardim. They're their own thing. And I want to tell you something. They have their own Piskei Aloha because they had their own Gedolim. They really did. Down the centuries, who Paskin and Hilcha Shabbos this way, and Hilcha Zerim this way, and Yorodea this way, and Ebenezer this way, and they have what to stand on. You understand? If, if if a visitor comes there and they say they do things a little bit different than what you're used to, it's not some uh, Amaratzisha business. Uh, they are grounded in, um, in, in great scholarship. A great scholarship. Now, what's interesting is a lot of this has to do with the fact that they were, um, if you look at the map, it's not far away from Sicily. And, uh, they, were, and they were not far away from Italy. And apparently, back in the 1600s, there was a lot of commercial intercourse with Livorno. And Livorno was the big Spanish-Portuguese community in Italy. It was a rich one that did not have a ghetto. And um, for a while, they cultivated uh, Torah literature. And a lot of Jews from Tuscany moved to uh, Tunisia. That's a whole schmooze by itself. And uh, that kept them in the, in the loop of what's going on in the Torah world. In the Torah world. Now, I repeat, you know, um, I don't have most of these swarm. Uh, I look at it from time to time. But I don't have the, most of this swarm. But it's a whole world by itself. And uh, apparently, schools like I just mentioned, and yeshivas and things of that nature, uh, were successful in the late 20th century. It's remarkable. So what happened literally was as follows. After World War II, Tunisia was still ruled by the French, but then they wanted their own independence. A whole independence movement started in the 40s. They finally got their independence in the 50s. The guy who was the boss, Bourguiba, was a relatively moderate type of guy. Um, of all the Arab dictators, I would say he was the best in the 50s and 60s and 70s. I remember when I was a kid, he even said like this, maybe we should recognize Israel and negotiate with them. Maybe that way we can uh, we can get rid of Israel through negotiations. So in other words, he couldn't come out and say, I'm in favor of recognizing Israel. He had to couch it in the language of maybe this will help us get rid of Israel. But it was a very liberal position for that period of time. And under him, he said, this, we're not going to bother the Jews. Nevertheless, when the Tunisians got their independence, uh, they were not interested in the Jews. They wanted to assert the Arab culture and the Arab nationality. And there's a whole genre of, um, of Tunisian intellectuals who are Jewish, who are educated in French culture, who were disillusioned with the, with the new Tunisia that rose up because they thought that they will all be friendly to the Jews, and it didn't turn out that way. And they came with called deracinated French uh, intellectuals. There were a whole bunch of these guys um, once upon a time. As, as the, each one of these subjects is a big schmooze by itself. I don't know going into it. It's not no gay to us. What is no gay is that um, the, the government, therefore in Tunisia, even though it's the Arab government, had been relatively tolerant of the Jews. Nevertheless, the general trends that I described made it uncomfortable for Jews to live there, and they all left. 
In other words, when I say all left, ruba de ruba. And um, that means, as I understand it, that uh, the only people left were the small groups of from Jews, mainly in the island of Jerba. So the fact you don't have fellow Tunisian Jews who are anti-from and are pushing you to change your school and all the rest of it, because they left, makes it easier for you. And if anything, the Jews in Jerba kept up the Kesher with those Tunisian Jews and German Jews who moved to Israel, and they're more on the from side. So I'm told that uh, the community down till today, which has always been involved in artisanship and jewelry and things like that, gold, whatever, uh, the kids grow up in the community. Um, they have chinuch, as we would say today, from K through 12 uh, in America. Limudic uh, Kodesh, basically. Um, the idea is not to equip your kid to go to college or university because that's the end of Judaism if you do that. But instead, to go to the yeshiva route. And many of them, I'm told, go to Israel to learn the Tunisian yeshivas over there, um, in Bnei Brak and such places. And then they come back and live in the communities. So you end up with, and you can make a living there. And um, if my information is correct, you can make a decent living over there. And so you still have this tiny island on an island of, what shall I say, pure Judaism? in which everybody's a Shomer Shabbos, uh, and everybody, you know, not just Shomer Shabbos, but, you know, from educated from, and that you don't find uh, probably anywhere. And it's the middle of an Arab country. I remember many, many years ago, I was looking once at Igris Moshe, and I was, like, surprised, because he had some Shiloh from a rabbi, I think it was in Jerba, or in Tunisia somewhere, we asked him some question, and, you know, I wouldn't have thought, because I didn't know at the time, that there were Jews who cared about anything still in some Arab country outside of Morocco. Morocco is the only country I knew about. Mind you, there are no Jews in Algeria. They kicked them all out just about. And uh, I doubt if there are any Jews left in Libya. Um, Tunisia is unusual in this regard. And the Jerba is definitely unusual. And obviously, they've worked out ways of getting along with the Arab neighbors. Otherwise, none of this would be possible. So there have to be good relations with the local Arab neighbors, and that's what I'm told. But when you live in an Arab country, including in Jerba, you are hostage to events beyond your control. Anytime there's a war in the Middle East between Israel and Gaza or anything like that, the Arabs go wild, like we saw in this country and you saw in Europe. And that's just increasing in our time. And um, here they'll have uh, you know demonstrations and screaming and this and that and the other. And in, in, in Germany, they, I remember Al-Qaeda put a bomb in the show and killed people. And you'll find, you know, things like that happen. So, to me, it's like living on the point of a sword. But obviously, they don't see it that way, uh, which is interesting. And they're still maintaining their Yiddishkeit. And uh, it's just interesting that I am speaking this morning on behalf of the cause, which is a fundraiser, not for a school in Baltimore, or in New York, or something like that, but for a totally from school, um, called Torbe in, um, in Tunisia, of all places, or more specifically in the island of Jerba, which is part of Tunisia, but just off the coast. So, uh, I uh, do encourage people, because I tell you again, if you're interested, I'll send you what they sent me. It was a very l- nice little video. Uh, not very uh, slick or anything like that at all. Adraba, I like the fact that it wasn't slick. You understand? And um, the result is 
that uh, you know they they have to raise one hundred twenty thousand dollars, whatever. It didn't wasn't like a whole lot of money, but they got to uh, to make it work. And uh, I want to encourage people once again to uh, to participate in this because it's the kind of thing every every bit helps. And uh, it's, the the uh, address is what I told you before, the BYL thing. Um, let me just find it again because I want to mention it before I go. I think it was bit.ly backslash and then D-J-E-R-B-A-T-O-R-A-H, Gerbatora. And uh, it is something remarkable in the year 2021 that, you know, that there's still uh, a fire burning in the middle of an Arab country. And uh, perhaps I'll go there someday. I don't know. We'll, we'll see. But with that, um, I want to thank the uh, Simons and the others for sponsoring. And I hope that, um, shall I say, uh, you know, we'll all be able to meet. And uh, wouldn't it be cool if we ever met in Gerbo? That's uh, it. Anyway, with that, I wish you a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.